took a trip to Florida and I saw evidence of prescribed fire, prescribed fire columns and billboards celebrating it. And I went, man, why aren't we doing this back Mm -hmm. in the West? And so I thought maybe the prescribed fire councils are a part of this. And I reached out to um, Mark Melvin from the Jones Center, who um, that's in Ishaway down in Georgia. And he at the time was the chair of the coalition of prescribed fire councils. And I said, Mark, what, what does it take to get one of these councils started? And he goes, it just takes a spark. I said, well, I, uh, I am good at that. I can light things on fire. I mean, you know, why not? And so he, but he, what he really meant was somebody needs to do it. Somebody just needs to do it. it Yeah. And so I said, okay, let's do this. Hello and welcome to Life with Fire podcast, the podcast that explores our relationship with fire and how we can better coexist with it in the future. I'm your host, Amanda Monti, and today we are talking to Amanda Rowe. Amanda was our second in-person interview that we did on a road trip back in September in Oregon. Uh, We spoke with Chris Adlam as well, who was on the last episode of the podcast two weeks ago. Would highly recommend checking that out, but Uh, Yeah, we've got another sort of in-person episode for you today. Uh, Some nice outside audio quality, the classic bird chirping and wind and all of the things that we have yet to figure out how to deal with when we're recording in the field. So we're figuring it out. We're getting there. Hoping for a lot more of these in-person interviews to be able to work through some of those kinks. But for right now, uh, we're speaking with Amanda Rowe. Amanda is a fantastic advocate of of prescribed fire, of fire use in Oregon. She has worked for every agency I think that you can possibly work for, barring I think maybe a tribal agency, but she has worked for the Forest Service, the BLM, ODF, the Nature Conservancy, OSU Fire Extension. I'm pretty sure if there is an agency in Oregon that you can work for in fire, Amanda Rowe has probably worked there. So we chatted about that, about the breadth of her experience in working in fire, and we talked about her role in starting the Oregon Prescribed Fire Council as well. So a lot going on here. Amanda is a fantastic resource for folks who are looking for ways to get involved in their own communities, being their own sparks, and really doing the work that we all know needs to get done instead of waiting around waiting for somebody else to do it, I guess. Uh, That is very much Amanda's philosophy. And we'll actually talk about philosophy too, because Amanda has a background in philosophy. That's what she got her undergraduate degree in. So we talk a little bit about the sort of intersection of philosophy and fire as well. But Amanda's personal philosophy is one I think we can all get behind. And that is that there's something to be done in your community or in your state. And you see that gap that needs to be filled. And you know you have the skills to potentially fill it, then go for it. And she's a really great lived example of that philosophy in action, and I think we can all learn a little bit from that. So let's get into this episode. This is actually one episode of two. I broke this uh, conversation up into two sections, about a half an hour apiece, because it was a long conversation and I wanted to give it uh, more space. So without further ado, here is episode one with Amanda Rowe of Life with Fire podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad we're finally chatting. Me too. I would love to hear um, a little bit about you. Who are you? And what is your background in fire? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. So we're sitting here in my hometown of Eugene, Oregon, uh, where I study philosophy as an undergraduate. And that's how I got started in fire. 
as I always tell folks, um, kind of jokingly, but seriously, I was, um, finishing up my degree and I decided to go join a crew based in Springfield, Oregon and, um, a contracting crew Mm -hmm. nonetheless, and got my first experiences, um, working in Oregon and Northern California on wildfire assignments Mm -hmm. and, um, being a philosophy student at the time, not really having much background in natural resources or ecology. I didn't really know what was happening on the landscape, but I understood that there was some really interesting disturbances and changes. And I had this mindset around philosophy and seeing things happen in the natural world that made sense for me from that standpoint. But I wanted to understand them better um, in an ecological and scientific context. So um, after graduating with my degree in philosophy, I decided to fight fire instead of going to pursue a higher degree to become a a professor, basically. That's where I was headed. But I said, no, I need to go do fire again because that was so cool. And one of my advisors said, don't go there. You should stay on the path. And the other said, get out there and experience the world and take philosophy out there. Mm -hmm. That's basically what I did. And then I didn't go back. Um, I ended up pursuing natural resources at OSU as a post-bac and then um, studied um, in a graduate program at the University of Idaho. So that um, I did concurrent with working um, full-time in Mm -hmm. fire. And um, I really made it an intention to... um, get my feet under me when it came to suppression before I was responsible for lighting fires. Totally. And, um, I had some influence early on from people that worked in fuels for the forest service, Mm -hmm. even though I was working in suppression initially on a BLM engine out in Eastern Montana. That's when I got my first government gig. And so that information that was coming to me from people who understood fuels while I was seeing fire in the landscape really kind of set the stage for my whole career. And um, I knew I wanted to be a burn boss. I knew I wanted to put fire back on the land because I could tell it needed to be there. And I could also tell that we were fighting a losing battle. And in 2001, that first year that I went back after I finished my philosophy degree was the year that the 30-mile fire happened. Mm -hmm. And I realized I could have been one of those young people that went up into the rock scree slope to do deploy their shelters to their own demise. I could have been one of them because I was that person not yeah. understanding what I was getting myself into and not being properly educated. So at the same time, I developed a very intense focus on training and getting involved in training and teaching others and mentoring others to be smart about how we do fire because it broke my heart knowing that, I mean, seeing those young people having, having that happen to them and knowing it could be me, it was like, so I got involved in training and working in that space at the same time that I was focusing on prescribed fire as my end state. Um, I went and hot shotted in Southern California. Um, I worked in Montana on the Gallatin, also worked in Oregon um, on the Umpqua and the Willamette before I really shifted to fuels as my focus and got a fuels tech job on those Sisters Ranger District. And that's where I like to say I totally just, that's where I really cut my teeth. I had enough experience uh, to make me perhaps overconfident when I arrived there (laughs) because I had gotten my burn boss qual. Mm -hmm. Um, But it it wasn't until I was burning pine, you know, day in and day out um, with different winds and different conditions and dealing with all of those complexities that I I really got um, solidified in my competency as a burn boss. So I credit my work on the Sisters Ranger District to 
to that, all of that really coming together. Um, and I, at the same time that I was doing that, I started my master's program. So I was doing it remotely, but my learning laboratory was on that district with all the wonderful people that worked there. If I had a soil science class that I was taking, I'd go talk to the soil scientist about something, you know, at the district that I was studying instead of, you know, having peers at school. Cause I was not there in Moscow, um, studying. Yeah. I was I had worked on the Sisters Ranger District and done some details uh, in um, really integrated veg management and post fire emergency stabilization and rehab. So mm-hmm. went to the BLM, um, worked on the Ochico, and um, had kind of taken a detour from fire to fight the invasive species problem, mm-hmm. which I like to describe as kind of like a slow moving wildfire. Yeah, and if you're into fighting losing battles, like. I was because I'm coming out of fire. It was sort of a natural fit. I'm like, sure, I'll fight this losing battle for a while. And, um, you know, really getting into early detection, rapid response, seeing where we could take an integrated uh, vegetation management approach for dealing with post-fire emergency problems like Medusa head, cheatgrass invasions, places where there's too much fire, actually, especially Mm -hmm. in the rangeland environments Mm -hmm. where that frequency is so high that those invasive grasses are actually driving the regime now. And it's no longer in its historic frequency of maybe like 25 to 75 years. It's like three to five now. So it's the opposite problem. Mm -hmm. And I so I was really glad to have worked on that. And I think that that sort of broadening of my horizons with getting a master's uh, set me up to come work for TNC as their fire manager. And I'm sitting here now at the Willow Creek Preserve, um, where I was uh, based when I worked for them. And that was from 2015 um, through 2020. No, wait a minute. Yeah, 20 when I went to work for Oregon State University. Um, So Oregon State University was a brief uh, period of time that I worked as an uh, assistant professor of practice for the extension fire program before I ended up in this job with Oregon Department of Forestry as their prescribed fire coordinator. Um, Now, it's important to note that I ended up in this job in part because of work that a nonprofit that I founded and chaired did, which is the Oregon Prescribed Fire Council. I founded that group in... um, with in working with others in Central Oregon primarily, um, as well as some folks from Oregon State University, um, we started the council basically to provide a forum for all the interested parties to gather and talk about prescribed fire, whether mm-hmm. they're regulatory, private, um, academic agencies. Mm-hmm. And so, I chaired the council. And the council worked with Sustainable Northwest and the Nature Conservancy to pass legislation under Senate Bill 762, which is the Wildfire Omnibus Bill. And that was for a certified burn manager program. As part of that, a fiscal ask was made in order to fund a position to administer that program. And that is my position. Now, it was not to just administer the program when they decided to create the job. They included that as part of the job, but it also includes writing policy, uh, creating legislative concepts, training uh, firefighters internally within ODF, and also finding all of the barriers within our agency to ODF firefighters being able to put more fire on the ground. Mm -hmm. For example, there's a perception that ODF cannot burn boss or take authority for prescribed burns on private land. That's not true. Under statute, um, we're authorized to do that. And so uh, just educating around that is really important because there's prior statute that says it's the landowner's responsibility if a fire starts on private land and leaves it and causes a wildfire that requires, requires response. True. However, if you're a representative of the state forester, i.e. an employee of ODF, and you're authorized to do so, then you can take responsibility as a burn boss on private land. Under the Certified Burn Manager Program, we extend that to private landowners who go through the education and training requirements and then get the certification with the program. That alleviates
eliminates their um, civil liability and also wow. creates a training program so that they can get educated on how to do that work. So this job, of course, was kind of a no-brainer for me, given how much I put into getting the program stood up. And I put in for it thinking uh, there could be some competition, but I ended up, and I'm sure there was, I guarantee there was, because it's a really cool job. And I got it. And so since then, which was February when I left OSU to come over to ODF, I've been mostly working on the rulemaking associated with um, the program. Wow. And that rulemaking is now complete. It's passed. It's been through public hearing. Um, and it'll go back before um, the Board of Forestry and pa be passed on for final um, rulemaking in November. So then following that is the actual implementation of the program with uh, training and curriculum that gets delivered to um, those who want to be in the program. The initial part of the program will be um, certifying people who are already type two burn bosses. And cool. then those will be folks who are available to provide the certification for others who are in training. So it's kind of creating a successional pathway. Cool. Starting with existing um, experienced yeah. people who already have the qualification. To be clear though, type two burn boss gets you certified burn manager. It doesn't go the other way. Um, so the rigor, the rigors of NWCG are greater than certified burn manager for sure, um, because the scale of burning that's taking place um, with the feds and the, under that system is demanding to that level. Yeah. So these burns are not uh, really anticipated to get to that kind of scale, although they certainly could. But so you're saying like the burn manager and like the burn boss, those are two different. They are distinct. Okay. And so one. Basically, what it means is that if you have a type 2 burn boss qualification, you can take an exam and do a field certification and, and get the certified burn manager. And that gives you that civil liability alleviation. Mm -hmm. If you um, are a certified burn manager, you need to still go through all the steps to get the NWCG type 2 burn boss qualification. So... Um, I mean, you still have to do a few things for certified burn manager, but in order to do the certified burn manager full um, program without having the type two burn boss, you have to do the you have to go through the training, work through your task book, um, and we only expect one assignment for the certification oh, for okay. yeah. um, people who are already type two burn bosses. When did you start the fire adapted or the, um, was it the fire adapted, like Oregon fire prescribed fire, Association? Uh, Oregon prescribed fire council council. There we go. Well, the idea started percolating in 2011, but it really got started in 2012. Mm -hmm. Um, and now wait, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So it was in 2012 after I'd finished, I'd finished my master's degree at university of Idaho mm -hmm. And the, the way this is kind of the origin story, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, in 2011, the International Congress of the Association for Fire Ecology was in Portland, Oregon. And my colleague um, Trevor Miller and I were there. And we saw a presentation by Lenny Quinn Davidson and Morgan Marner on how the Nor Northern California Prescribed Fire Council got started. And Trevor kind of put me up to it because... He said, oh, you're finishing your master's. You need another project. You have all the time in the world. Sure. He's, no, he was saying, you're going to finish your master's soon, so you're going to have time to do uh -huh, this. Uh -huh. And he already had started a nonprofit, the Central Oregon Avalanche Association. Um, and so he was busy with that. And I said, okay, Trevor, we'll see. And then I took a trip to Florida, and I saw evidence of prescribed fire, prescribed fire columns and billboards celebrating it. And I went, man, why aren't we doing this? back mm -hmm. in the West. And so I thought maybe the prescribed fire councils are a part of this. And I reached out to um, Mark Melvin 
from the Jones Center, who um, that's in Ishaway down in Georgia. And he at the time was the chair of the coalition of prescribed fire councils. And I said, Mark, what, what does it take to get one of these councils started? And he goes, it just takes a spark. I said, well, I, uh, I'm good at that. I can light things on fire. I mean, you know, why not? And so he, but he, what he really meant was somebody needs to do it. Somebody just needs to do it. That's all it it is, yeah. And so I said, okay, let's do this. And I started trying to do it. And, you know, it it was a process. And there was lots of bumps along the way. And people that didn't like me who thought they should be doing it. And then I said, well, why didn't you? (laughs) It's not my fault. And I don't care who's doing it. Let's just do (laughs) it. It needs to be done. And, you know, egos get in the way of things all the time. People talk about who's doing what and who gets credit. And it's like, who cares, you know? And, um, so yeah, and I've probably gotten more credit than I deserve <laughs> for the prescribed prior council, but, um, and you know, to be fair, the council really it was a labor of love and it was about showing up and just doing it and reaching out and connecting people and getting that email list built and just the, it's a grind, you know, really making a difference. It's like a lot of little things put together. It's a grind. It's not about making one big change or one sweeping thing or, you know, it's just about showing up every day, day, in and, day out, and doing man. little things every single day mm-hmm. and believing that those little things will make a difference and believing that when you make a shift in a direction from your compass, that even though you think you're only this far from the path here, when you're out here, you're that far. And you did go the different direction, but you don't think you are at the time. We think we have to go 180. You know what? We don't. We actually only have to make a small shift and then just keep on that path and be diligent and show up every day. Mm -hmm. So that's how the council got started, you know? And there was definitely like ups and downs, but I'll tell you what really made the difference was, was the partnership with others and, um, getting help from Sustainable Northwest, the Forest Service funding the council. The Forest Service has been a huge supporter of the council. It wouldn't be where it is today if it weren't for the Forest Service, Mm -hmm. guaranteed, because they were the ones that actually stepped up and put the money into it Mm -hmm. to help pay somebody to do the hard work of showing up every day and doing the grind. Because the thing is, you know, being a volunteer will burn you out. And I know because it happened to me. I got burned out several times on the council because of just keeping at it. And Burnt you get out weary. Volunteers Anonymous over I know, here. right? I know. And that's because we're, well, you get, you know, passion does not pay the bills, it turns out, unfortunately. But it still fuels you in what mm-hmm. you're doing. It still pays you here. But you got, you only going to take so much payment in that form. So that you can stay, you know, legit in the rest of your life. Sane. Sane, healthy, (laughs) stable, everything else. Um, Yeah. So anyways, so the council launched when we were able to pay Jenna Knobloch to administer, to be the administrative coordinator and to really take on the bulk of the work of scheduling, getting meetings going, keeping the money going, figuring out where the money should go. And, um, And then she got swooped up into... Um, working for the National Association of Science or National Fire Federation of Scientists and the Wildfire Leadership Council. She's coordinating wow. that now. And so that she really launched out of that position. And now we're um, working on backfilling. We have a new um, coordinator and new leadership coming on because I had to step down as the chair when I took my job with ODF. Mm-hmm. I'm not allowed to um, sway decision making or be on the board, which is great um, because it's time. It, it's there's. There's a time for new leadership, no matter what the old leadership was like. They could be the best leaders ever, and you still just need a new leader to shake things up and put um, a new spin on things, you know, just to keep it relevant. Totally. So, yeah. Do you th- have you seen a shift in culture since you started the 
the council? Like, have you seen mm-hmm. maybe more public acceptance or maybe like more buy-in from um, certain groups or anything like that? Yeah, I think that it's been a good tool for communicating. I've seen a lot of good um, outreach that's been done because of the council. And I think just that forum for discussion and promotion of the good work of fire and, you know, the things that it brings people. I mean, it's it's a lot more than just hazard reduction, right? You mm-hmm. know, it's also about rekindling the relationship with fire because people uh, are in a pinch right now, you know, with it's forcing our hands quite a bit and that forces a relationship too. So, you know, how we relate to fire is, is really reliant on um, the ways in which it's presented and communicated about, mm-hmm. you know, that opens a lot of doors for people. So I think we've had some shifts. Um, but I also think that there, when we have adverse events, that um, are representative of a small fraction of time frame, but they represent a significant impact, then, you know, we have to deal with that. And that can often swing pendulums the wrong direction as a response or reaction to those adverse events. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, one step forward, two steps back kind of thing. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a bit about you have such a broad range of agency experience and yeah. You you started out with a contractor. You've worked. Have you worked for the Forest Service? You yeah. said you did. Yeah. Oh, of course. Most you did. of my right. careers Most in the Forest Service. Yeah. Um, can you talk about like this breadth of agency experience that you have and like how it contributes to your maybe your expertise, but also your just your perspective of of fire management in some way? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's good maybe to uh, speak like chronologically about my experience because you know I started in contracting. That was my foot in the door. And I think it was a good foot in the door. But at, and now, in those days, that was in 1999. I realize I am dating myself here. But in 1999, the contractor world was a, a rougher place than it is today. So there's no uh, judging contracting today based on what I experienced in 1999. Okay, that was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were drugs on the crew. There was definitely stuff going on that I was like, I love fire and I don't want to be around that here. So... I was leaving that going, I want to do forest service. That looks like a much more legit operation. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I went forest service. Actually, I initially went BLM. That was my first fed job. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I went to work as an apprentice for the forest service. Oh, nice. And that's how I got my foot in the door. And, um, and, you know, I think for the most part, there was a lot of good that came out of that because of that kind of thing I'm talking about with the daily grind and the rigor and the showing up it ingrained in me like a bunch of practices that I take for granted today to this day as far as little things about how to do fire and so I feel like like what you know it's just like when you're gearing up you know and you're just like putting your boots on and like just the way you do certain things like I've seen people take like twice as long with stuff where I'm just like, come on, you know, cause I was a <laughs> hot shot. I'm like five minutes, dude, five minutes. That's how long, you know, it's like, yep. so, so that might've developed some intolerance in me that I had to work out later. It actually did, frankly. Um, but so, I mean, some intolerance of like not having it together and being mm-hmm. on it all the time, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I think just having standards and rigor and, having a process for everything was really good, you know? Yeah. Um, and just the access to landscapes and opportunities and work environments and teams. And there was just so much that I, there was no way I could have gotten to where I'm at now if I hadn't 
spent that time with the Forest Service and worked on different forests in different regions and been been willing to bump around and do that whole gig. Mm-hmm. I just hit a wall with that where I didn't want to do that anymore. And that's actually part of why I left was because I said, you know, it's been cool in all Forest Service, but if I have to move around to move up, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. I want to be rooted in place and work there. I live where I'm going to live for the rest of my life. I'm not right. leaving here because it's where my family lives. It's where we have land. It's where I want to see my my mark on the land actually have an influence over time. If I'm if yeah. that's my vocation, I don't want to just do that and then bump to the next place. Right. And I think if I had a criticism of the agency, it's about the way it encourages people to move around, to move up instead of encouraging them to root into place and become a part of the community in a longer term sense so that they can actually in, in, integrate. Mm-hmm. People in communities mostly don't like the Forest Service because of their lack of investment in that in that way, you know, because there's, there's too much movement. And so I went to work for TNC because I was looking at two places I wanted to live, either Bend or Eugene. Mm -hmm. I owned a house in Bend at the time and my family was over here and this is where I'm from. And so, um, they actually, TNC let me have a dual location deal where I had an office here and I could work from home in in Bend. And at that time, before the pandemic, no one was doing anything like that. That is super cool. Yeah. No one was working flexible options for people like that, but they wanted me that bad. And they, and they, I was sort of taught to bargain for a job for the first time in my life when I went to work for TNC Mm -hmm. and by the guy who was hiring me actually, because at first I'm going, I don't even know what I'm doing here. And he goes, you've never negotiated for a job before, have you? I'm like, (laughs) no, I'm a government employee. That's all I've ever known. I need somebody to have that talk with me. <laughs> I know it's hard, but it's important. You've got to do it. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of, he just kind of gently nudged me because he knew if I didn't get what I want, I wasn't going to leave my safe safety net of forest service work. So he, he actually coached me indirectly into asking for everything I wanted. And that was what it ended up being was this, um, co-located thing, which of course everyone's doing now that workers have more hand post pandemic in their location and their flexible work schedule situations. So, yeah. Yeah. And so, so I guess, you know, that's sort of the contractor word. I got BLM and forest service, both experience and the BLM, I got my start with them. And then I went back to work for them when I detailed as a post fire emergency stabilization and rehab coordinator. That's Mm -hmm. a mouthful as a natural resource specialist for them. Um, It was actually coordinating the largest aerial herbicide application in Oregon history, post-fire, which was very controversial (laughs) on certain levels, but not at the same time. Somehow it didn't get as much attention as I thought it was going to, which was actually a good thing because it was a pretty mild thing when you looked at it overall. But Mm -hmm. you think herbicide and aircraft in Oregon, and that usually goes down pretty hard. Um, So that was just this total eye-opening experience to, wow, we can do things working for the federal government in fairly short order. If you're working for the BLM, you go to the Forest Service, it's like night and day, very different environments, actually. And most people don't realize that the Forest Service is held to a lot more than in the BLM in terms of um, scrutiny, public scrutiny. And that's because people really cares about trees and they don't really care that much about old growth sagebrush yeah, and range. And so the Forest Service gets all this attention when they have a big fire or something else going on or NEPA or other things. And and I think that's a big reason they're so much more constrained because I did feel that working for the BLM was a little bit more, uh, I guess, flexible to some extent. Um, But nothing compared to working for TNC, 
more flexible than any place I ever worked because they're private, obviously nonprofit. Um, the amount of growth that I went through that I experienced there was incomparable professionally. I mean, that's where I launched, completely launched because I could share the council. I was traveling around to Burns. Um, I was leading Burns, Oregon, California, Georgia, you know, Oklahoma. I was all over the place and um, doing a lot of work with the training exchange program um, still teaching. I don't, I haven't really talked about leading the prescribed fire, um, courses at Pacific Northwest training center, but that's been a huge part of my work is, um, being the lead instructor for RX 301 and then the combined RX 301, 341 classes and working with NWCG on combining those classes and delivering that training. That's been really important work, but that, and that's followed me actually through all these jobs, Uh which is really cool. Um, so just kind of back to the TNC thing. I mean, Really what that showed is that I was uh, kind of waiting for uh, the opportunity to just blossom, if you will. Like mm-hmm. I was sort of, uh, I was budding and then I went to TNC and I really fully blossomed uh-huh. because of all the opportunities I was afforded by while working there. Um, wow. And then I would also say on the flip side of it, it ended um, not so great, I would say, because of budget cuts and that forcing me to leave because of the salary cut that resulted from their decisions around how to handle uh, anticipation of pandemic impacts to the organization. And um, I don't know to what extent those really panned out for them, but they were worried about that and they had a huge budget cut that forced me out. And so that's why I went to work for OSU, which by the way, was a very um, great, you know, in my field, in my location drop, sort of Perfect. unheard of to have something like that right at your disposal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so I went to work for the OSU fire program in a pretty tough circumstance, I would say, you know, uh, um, I grew up on the Mackenzie river and the labor day fires and the holiday fire fire came within a mile of the house I grew up in. Um, I was home with my 17 month old child at the time and my dog who was dying and my husband was up on the lion's head fire and he evacuated twice from that fire um and then we put my dog down a week later and then I started my job at OSU a month after that wow. so I walked in the door at OSU pretty much in full trauma mode yeah, like complex like raw, trauma man. but I had compartmentalized it because I didn't I didn't know what else to do I was just like I have to do this job I have this child um you know, and what do I have to complain about? Look at my friends whose houses were burned down, you mm-hmm. know? So, but by the time, I mean, it came out later and it was like, it just basically counseling trauma, traumatized people as someone who was dealing with their own trauma was just like a lot. It was a lot. And then we, but we got some really good education about trauma-informed care. We started sort of dealing with that internally as a team while I was there. And that started to help like me realize, oh, wow, this is what was happening, you know, because when you're in that stuff, you don't know what's happening to you unless someone can point it out to you. And I just didn't have anyone able to do that for me. And so then I was like, oh, okay, I need to deal with this and, you know, get some help. So I did, which is super important to talk about in this era. You know, if you've had some challenges with mental health, you need to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, how could you not if you went through that? It would be like kind of weird if you were like, I went through all these things and I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Are you sure? It's just building. It's just building until yeah. it, it's, a, it's right. a breaking point. Really. Yeah. And so, 
Yeah. So that, so the OSU job, I have, it was really my experience with academia, but it was colored heavily by that stuff. So it's Mm -hmm. like, what can I say about that job? It was a year and four months, um, trying to help people in a very traumatized state while I was not in a particularly good place myself, but I did a ton of good work while I was there. Um, and got a taste for the academic world, which my, my take on that is, um, I, when I was with TNC, I was like a big fish in a little pond. That's a pretty good place to be. Yeah. I go to OSU and I'm like a little fish in a big pond because if you don't have a PhD and you work at the university, not so great. And so I went, uh, I don't know about this little fish business. This isn't really my style. I don't have to be the big fish, but I don't really want to be the little one. And now at OGF, I kind of feel like I'm the right size fish in the right size pond. And I got my, my work that I do that I'm really excited about. That's exactly what I want to be doing. And... So, yeah. So, and it's my first state agency experience. So, you know, I had, um, contract federal government, nonprofit state university and extension state university. So that's a land grant university. And that's a specific mission, not quite the same as like academia in general. Uh Um, yeah. And now, and now I'm at the state level and, and it's a new, um, kind of government to mm-hmm. be clear because when you work for the feds you're sort of answering to all of the americans everywhere right but when you work for the state you know you're answering to people in your state they're more direct community yeah and it's, and it's like... a little more direct and that i actually kind of like that because i feel like i'm working for people around me and not a more sort of um like Im- impersonal like somebody out there that i have never like met amorphous just this like amorphous american citizen i don't know yeah All right, that concludes our first episode with Amanda Rowe. We will have another episode from Amanda, I believe, next week, maybe the week after, if we don't get it together in time to get another episode up next week. Uh, Anyway, thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. If you liked this episode, please share it with somebody who also might like it. And if you feel like subscribing to the podcast or reviewing the podcast, we would really appreciate either of those things. Um, But otherwise, we're just happy that you are listening and enjoying uh, the podcast. So always appreciate that. And what else do I have to say? If you feel like supporting us on Patreon, you can totally do that. Uh, It's just patreon.com slash lifewithfirepod. Super straightforward. If you donate at any level right now, I will send you a calendar. And that also brings up calendars. If you want a calendar... I'm going to probably start promoting them as half off here pretty soon. I have about 20 left I need to get rid of. So if you want a Life with Fire calendar for the rest of the year, there's still a lot of year left, you know, then just let me know. I can send you one. It's going to be 15 bucks. That includes shipping and I'll get it out to you as soon as possible. So let me know if you're interested in that. And otherwise, we will catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening.